Welcome to First Mile's Climate Heroes. I'm your host, Bruce Bratley, founder of recycling company First Mile. On this show, we meet and learn from the climate heroes who are building solutions right now to tackle climate change. Today's guest is an author, activist, and founder of two businesses with the aim of closing the knowledge gap between humans and their understanding of our Earth systems. To do this, Cindy Ford has written a children's book called Bright New World, runs Can Do, which is an app where people get paid to work for Earth, nature being the ultimate boss, of course, and she runs Planetary, an educational community that is aligned to all 17 of the UN's Sustainable Development Goals, and we're looking forward to getting into that. And Cindy, welcome to First Mile's Climate Heroes. Great to have you on the show. Well, it's lovely to be here, Bruce. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of your fantastic community. It's a pleasure. And I mean, wow, you've got a lot going on. So, I mean, it sounds hugely uh, busy and looking forward to hearing about all of these things. But first of all, can you give our listeners an introduction um, of how you became a climate hero and where you're making an impact? Well, I'm not sure that I'm a hero, um, Bruce. I think probably everybody who tries to do what they can is a hero. If that's the definition, then I then I, f- I fall into that category. I mean, I was very lucky in a way. I had parents that were extremely switched on about what was happening on planet Earth, you know, even many years ago from the environmental side of it and the climate justice or the human rights side. So I, I really didn't have a choice. I grew up within the environment movement and in the, I was quite instrumental, not instrumental, but you know, I was quite active in the anti-apartheid movement. I think all these things are really linked because we don't get we don't get systems change really without reevaluating how we operate as a human family, and that that works across how we treat the planet and how we treat people. So most of my career, if you can call it that, has been spent in some form of activism, whether that's direct, as when I was much younger as a student, we took direct action as frontline activists, or that whether that's working either within the system, for example, within corporate social responsibility or ESG investing. I helped, I had the great good fortune to work with some of the pioneers of sustainability investing, or really trying now to build new models, which is what I'm doing very much with my organization Planetary. This is really trying to build a new model of how we educate humans and tell new stories because I think politics is downstream of culture. If we have a different set of narratives about Earth, we make different choices about how we live here. So telling different stories for Earth as a writer and a creator for me is a really important part of making systemic change. So when we go to school now, it's all very much about being in your head, but there's a movement around head heart and hand is that where you are to get people to sort of experience nature with their heart and their hands as well or is it something else well i think that's really important uh bruce sure you can't just live in your head you know i think part of the problem is um human beings over the last you know certain human beings in the global north over the last two three hundred years have become seen themselves as more and more detached from nature, you know, from the enlightenment, that sort of mechanistic worldview at nature is a machine that you can use as a set of component parts that you can extract, and humans are somehow outside of that. I think if we can reconnect to nature with our hearts and with our spirits, then we start to see ourselves 
as part of this self incredible self-regulating ecosystem. So really, the, the way that the, um, our education would work is that we do understand what our planetary boundaries are. I'm sure some some of the listeners, if not all, will be familiar with the work of Johan Rockström, the Stockholm Resilience Centre, which has identified these nine planetary boundaries, which are very much our life support system, like our lungs, our hearts, our liver. If we operate as we do our, our human bodies, if we enable, if we uh, whatever we do means that we keep healthy, keep within these boundaries, then we can work out how to live in balance in planet Earth, whether we want to be astrophysicists or hairdressers, everything that we now do has to be within the limits of these planetary boundaries. Indeed, now we need to help find ways of working that help these to regenerate because we pushed over the limits on, on seven, actually, already of these nine boundaries. Sorry, well, I was going to ask which one we've got closest to. So we're we're, we're over we're we're over capacity on seven of the nine. Yeah, we are, which is you know it's a pretty critical situation. But the, you know the good the positive news is these things are some of the a lot a lot of the damage, not all of it, is is reversible or mitigatable, and that's why it's critical to have a new generation of humans that understand you know what we can do to be part of regenerating rather than caught in this old paradigm of extracting to extinction, which is very much what a lot of our companies are you know what people are educated to do for want of a diff- understanding different models and what are the just for the listeners that haven't heard of the planetary boundaries can you give us a couple of examples and maybe the ones that have been maybe one exceeded and one not exceeded yeah well i mean there i would i would strongly recommend if people are interested you know please do go and look them up but you know there are simple things relatively simple things that we sh- we know how we treat our carbon sinks our uh, our um, oceans our rainforests how we treat our bio, manage our biodiversity. There must be space for biodiversity. You know the pollutants that we put into our air and our water, the nitrogen, the, the phosphates. Um, it's it, those are the you know again it's 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 they're relatively simple to say, but they're you know if you go on to the um, if you Google the nine planetary boundaries, you'll see them in much more detail. But it's it's really what we're taking out of Earth and what we're putting in, which is causing these to go terribly out of. Um, out of balance. And what are you doing then with planetari? Is it planetary or planetary? Sorry. Tomato, tomato, really. <laughs> so however you feel happy saying it, Bruce. Planetary. What are you doing with planetary? What's the uh, business there? Well, planetary really is this educator. If we are going to have, um, you know, to build a world with a future, the sooner we are able to understand what that looks like, the better, really. So children, I do believe, land eco-literate. So instead of a model, really, that's designed, our education systems very much reflected the needs and the demands of the Industrial Revolution. You know, now we have a whole different set of needs as a human family. So the, the planetary, planetary is an education system that is set up to align with the planetary boundaries, or if you like, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And so children learn whatever it is that they're learning. No, it, it doesn't change the subjects that we need to know, history, geography, economics, art, uh, literature, as, as they go on through the system. But it does so that they're taught in line with, you know, so you understand these subjects in the context of uh, of the planetary boundaries and of what we are going to need to do. The, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, they're not perfect. There's 17 of them, but they do set out a roadmap for the human family to achieve something that looks like sustainable development. So if we know that, if we know that that's our roadmap, why are we not teaching towards that in our schools? And that's what Planetari is setting out to, to design, really. It's an education system that enables young people to learn within that framework. 
And is this about enriching the current curriculum to include education around the planetary boundaries or, or is it a, a, almost like a separate module or a separate GCSE, separate A-level? Um, will it become a compulsory subject? How are you going to try and interlace them into sort of standard? Yeah, that's a very good question, Bruce. I mean, it is really systemic. You can't just bolt on an A-level in um, earth sciences or something and expect to get systemic change. It's, you know, if we're learning about... Let's take history or economics. Let's take economics. If 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 you're learning how how you know about economics and you're using models that are very really much based on, for example, we have one measure of value G- GDP, and that can't continue. If you're measuring country success by GDP, it doesn't matter whether you've sold, you know, weapons, whether the um, the money has been generated cleaning up after ecological disasters. It's just giving you one number. We know there's much more holistic ways of understanding of 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 keeping balance you know nature has to be on the balance sheet we've got the superb work of kate raworth with donut economics so we're using systems to teach that to teach children that for what as the world as it was rather than the world as it will be so yes we are looking at creating resources for for teachers that can bring it in to the curriculum where we know where they're where their space you know for example people always think sustainability sits in geography but we are actually looking at doing something much wider than that where you're t- we are designing a new curriculum as well so that um, whatever the subject is taught there's an awareness of how we um, are part of earth systems the history that we've told you know history is another thing that you know the history is very much one of colonization in a way glorifying that these things are telling a, a partial truth of what happened we have to relook at what the history of the world really has meant in terms of where we've ended up um, in you know, in some ways we saw what we saw as progress we now understand as the roots of our demise and if you teach that in schools children are much more less likely to try to replicate that in the ambitions that they have and to really understand that you know, we, we need to follow a different path uh, or pioneer different pathways to get different results if we keep as einstein famously said if we keep using the same thinking We'll get the same problems. We cannot. We cannot find. We cannot find the solutions with the same thinking that created them. So it's a very much a systemic shift in education. At the same time as providing teachers and educators with what they need in the short term to get these subjects onto the curriculum, but definitely no, not bolting on something to the edge. It's it's transformation throughout the whole system. First Mile is the UK's leading waste management service. We help over 30,000 businesses reduce their carbon impact with our award-winning range of recycling solutions. Go to our website, which is thefirstmile.co.uk to get started today. If you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe. We have brand new episodes every Wednesday. On a sort of scale of 1 to 10, I mean, how 10 being good, where are we, do you think, in terms of the curriculum and and, and educating people? children in the real world and what the future is going to look like rather than some sort of strange colonial history or maths yeah well it really depends on the teachers because there's absolute superb teachers out there and if they've got the fight and they've got the willingness to push it then they can push things through but that's really exhausting and it shouldn't be left to teachers to have to do that and there's superb um organizations that are developing different curriculums like Thoughtbox, which is run by Rachel uh, Mewson, Reboot the Future is a fantastic resource for children or for teachers on this. 
but it should really be coming from the top down. And we have a government, I'm afraid, that does not has not accepted the reality of this. And it's congratulated itself on creating a world-class curriculum and sustainability. But what that actually boils translates to is creating, a, a, adding a, a GCSE in natural history, which just is, is not enough. And without the mandate, the schools can't change quickly enough because they have to teach to test. And if they, you know, they're considered, you know, they, you know, all of their assessment is based on whether how, how well the children pass these exams. So unless the subjects themselves cannot, you know, unless you're being asked to learn a different type of knowledge, it's very, very hard for the schools to change. And the, te- the teachers and the children are aware of that, but without a mandate from the top, it's, it's, it's much harder to make the changes that, you know, that we'd all like to see, that we all know are necessary. It's like, slightly easier in primary schools, but secondary school, you're, you're really locked into this, as you say, the old colonial model in economics, history, and basically, you know, many other subjects. How are you making the change? I mean, how operationally is planetary actually getting, are you lobbying? How are you trying to get the system to change? Yeah, we're trying to create really fabulous resources that people will want to use. Um, my book's just come out, Bright New World. You know, we're building a curriculum around that. So as it, at each of those um, sections that I talked about, energy, food, transport, oceans, travel, you know, they, they actually have supporting resources around it that work across disciplines so that you can, you know, you can use them for art, you can use them for science, you can use them for math, history, but those are the topics. Because there's, there's, all, there's always topics in curriculums, but those are the topics that you learn again. So we're, we're de- developing that and getting that used where we can. I'm carry on writing, you know, I'm a writer, so I'm writing these these stories. The fantastic Amitav Ghosh and Ben Okri have put out really powerful calls to writers and creatives. They're saying, you know, there's never been a time in human history that is more important for anybody with an agency or with a platform to tell stories for change than to tell them or to help publish them as you're doing with your brilliant podcast. And then, yes, it is a matter of, of, of working with the other people in this transformative education space, for want of a better word, and, 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 and being advocates for, for change and building allies and building an, a much broader understanding of why this type of education is critical. And what's your favourite story that you like to tell? Well, uh, you know, we see, we see this sort of, which is an agent for positive change. Well, that? that's slightly tricky, actually, because it does depend on on the audience that I'm speaking to. I mean, I think sometimes for secondary schools, I think, um, again, because it does come from my own history, my own past, that I think that, you know, when we look at Nelson Mandela, you know, a man who was in prison for 27 years, but the, the British government, for example, called him that black terrorist. And, you know, we were in the same way that the climate protesters were arrest- are now being arrested and given just become more draconian jail sentences. You know, we were arrested for, for standing up and saying, actually, this man needs to come out. He's the, one of the greatest freedom fighters the world has ever seen. And now there's, I don't ever meet a single person that remembers Nelson Mandela as anything but the greatest freedom fighter that the world has ever seen. And yet it was only, you know, it was 20, 30 years ago that that was... So the change does happen and it happens really completely. Things do flip. And uh, when they flip, they just flip, the, the whole system flips with them. And that, you know, that. so I think while we're in this ridiculous situation that you're seeing climate scientists now being arrested, I have huge hope for saying, hey guys, we need to change this, it's killing all of us. You know, I think that we're going to see that flip really fast as well. Common sense just kind of hits, the pressure comes. You know, you see this fight as we saw with apartheid, we saw with the civil rights movement to maintain this old order. And then suddenly it just 
disintegrates and this new and it, it creates the space when it's not dissolved it suddenly is that there's the pressure coming from all points and the people have been working like you the business leaders the educators the whole there's a whole other fabric in our society there that's ready that's been working for years to create something that's much much healthier to that, that then moves in so i think we really are at that we're reaching those tipping points the absurdity is apparent to almost everybody, unfortunately, apart from the people that, have, that are desperately hanging on to these levers of power. Exactly. And even if, we make, even if we make the world cleaner and better and a better place to live in, and it turns out that actually we didn't need to do any of that, and climate, the climate crisis wasn't actually happening, it's, we're still going to have a much nicer place to live. It doesn't really matter. It's sort of win-win. Yeah, I, I would find it incredibly hard to, uh, you know, to, to to agree with anything that said the climate crisis didn't happen. We've all seen what's happened globally across the world this summer. I mean, I think you'd have to be in a pretty entrenched sense of denial not to to see that. But you're absolutely right. The, the the answers to mitigating that are also the ones that bring around a much more just and fair society with far less huge divisions in 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 inequality and so yeah hopefully as a, as a human family we pass through this level of you know it's almost like a teenager we've gone mad we've 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 used up all the toys we've gobbled up all the sweets you know we've beaten up other kids in the playground and now we've kind of grow, growing up and we walk out the other side and say hey actually if we organized it in this way if we shared if we cared a bit more if we dared to do things differently, we would have a much nicer place. And I, I, I hope as a human family, we're gradually getting to that realisation. Changing subject, Cindy, can you tell us about makerzines? Is this all about using your hands and uh, to learn with or something else? Yeah, no, it, it really is. I used to run the Cambridge Science Centre, which was a hands-on science and discovery centre. And you look at how children learn. They le learn in very different ways. And like when children actually get their hands-on, so if you're exploring electricity, you know, you get your hands on a van, van de Graaff generator or, you know, on a, on a centrif centrifugal force, you've got this fantastic living, lived experience of it. It's, it's much more exciting for children to learn that way. And the learning takes place in their brains in a, in a much more engaged way. I think the way that we do enable children to learn does have to shift because sort of locking children in the classroom for in front of a desk for you know five six hours a day, your your brain switched off really after a couple of hours. So that so mixing it up with movement and with these different types of learning, I think, are very important. So the magazine came from that. So you when you you get a, a beautiful adventure, we call them an exploration, and you open them up. And yes, there's 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 part magazine. It gives you facts, but there's partly things to make. So you've learned about, for example creating a marine protected area and why it's important. Then you get to make your own. There's a pocket in the back of the makerzine, we call it the cargo pack, and you pull things out and you've made your own marine protected area as a mobile, or you've made your own oyster uh, reseeding bed. And so that you can actually see, you put the creatures in, you put the, the anchor species in the oysters, and then all the other little creatures come back and they live in this beautiful oyster hotel. But because, you know, I can't have, um, the physical exhibits are extremely expensive and, and cumbersome. We, we did create a van that you could move them all around, you know, put them in the back of the van, take them anywhere. But these, the makerzines are a kind of a paper-based version of that. So children get this hands-on making experience, which hopefully teachers, educators can extend in the classroom environment or the home environment. But it really is, hey, let's get up from our desk and let's get our hands on and let's learn about these things in a, in a different set of, you know, dimensions. Brilliant. I love it. Fantastic. Um, so, I guess I was going to ask you about oceans and blue, but you've answered the question because in, in you know you talk about 
educating children around food and food systems, transport, energy, oceans. Um, and you can sort of experience most of them in your day-to-day life. You can try some different food. Uh, you can get the bus or cycle, walk. But I guess you've answered the question around oceans because I was like figuring how on earth do you get children to learn about and experience the oceans but i think it you know is it that simple or do we need to do we need to get people to the seaside more well i think yeah i mean there's the, the hopefully you know the makerzines with the makerzine experience you know that was it you get your hands on you get things but yeah i think if people can the, the sea is 70 percent of our planet is ocean and yet so many of us live really far away it makes every other breath that we breathe it's you no know, it's, it's, it is our biggest part our most vital organ but people live very far away from it so if there are ways that you can get to see great but there's also so many beautiful sea stories and sea films not just the, the incredible blue planet that david attenborough so brilliantly brought to us but there's fantastic the little mermaid there's you know there's all sorts of incredible sea stories that children love that wake them up to these these glorious creatures that live there. I mean, I think VR has a really great role to play. I've just had a fantastic VR experience going into the rainforest. So I think there's a lot more imagination that you can use to bring the sea into people's lives, even if they can't actually get down to the seaside. But but yeah. And from a sort of a, a cultural perspective, a sort of um, either an artist or a musician or a, a leader, who who are the younger generation identifying with in terms of the climate? You know, is it still Greta Thunberg or is it is it someone else? I mean, who who, who are the sort of cultural figureheads or, or or bands or things or films that that young people tend to identify with now? Well, I think that it's. I think, it, I think young people are so varied, Bruce. I'd really have a. I'd have a hard time putting um, a finger on anyone, particularly. Particularly, I'm a bit. Maybe I'm a bit out of touch as well because things change very quickly. <laughs> There's some incredible yeah. young uh, climate leaders. There's the Sunshine Movement in the states that are, you know, bringing great laws to to pass. You know, to actually ask, take you know, to to make legal challenges to children's right to have a future. I'm not so sure about um, musicians. There's beautiful books um, that are. There's so many now that are coming out with with, with which really enable children to take the. Um, there's the Wolf Brothers series. There's all sorts that put the um, put give not anthropomorphize, but actually put take, tell a story from you know an earth centric story which i think you know children love and seem to be responding extremely well to but i wouldn't presume to know who's the there's a fantastic organization called rewriting extinction they have the most important comic book on earth which is stories to save the world but the brilliant thing about um that's headed up by a fantastic person called paul good enough and he's worked on you know with the marvel universe people so he really knows how to tell these stories in a way that are short, punchy, engaging, and in really contemporary language, language he engages with, you know, the celebrities that the children love so that they see, oh, he said it was great, so therefore I'm interested. And I think that's a really good way of doing it because I think one of the problems is these things live in bubbles, in echo chambers, that the most important thing is to get them into um, the mainstream consciousness. So, yeah, there's a lot out there that was super interesting cindy so the book bright new world uh, is that available everywhere or is there a website people need to go to to find a copy of that 
No, The Bright New World is available on everything from Amazon to bookshop.org, Blackwell's, Waterstones. There's my own website, cindy4.world. But yeah, the most you, you'll find it anywhere, really, hopefully. Brilliant. <laughs> do hope so. In the, in, in the little time remaining, I just wanted to talk quickly about Can Do. What is it? And, and this is sort of doing jobs for planet Earth. Can you explain what we're doing now? Yeah, well, Can Do is a, is a concept that we're trying to bring to life. It's, it's quite tricky but the the, um the idea behind can do is yes you get paid to work for earth so instead of the most important jobs done the the jobs that look after earth's systems being voluntary which is a lot of the regenerative work now is done by volunteer organizations you're actually going to get paid for it so instead of your side hustle driving an uber you then you can actually go on the app you can find a local climate positive job near you and then you can do that and you can get paid you know whatever you know your, your, your little bit of extra money to do this work and just as we were saying people who are really battling the cost of living crisis they're going to have to you're going to have to get up and go out to work and do whatever you need to survive so why not be able to pick up this app and say i can earn a bit of my extra money you know planting mangroves cleaning up a beach distributing food that would otherwise be wasted it's that kind of job that we're trying to get on this app and get that to work. And who pays for the work to get done? Governments, corporations? Well, that's the harder part of Can Do is getting that the idea would be the corporates pay a subscription so that their employees yeah. can use the app. Um, and then uh, so that goes into a fund. Philanthropists would pay into a Can Do fund. So instead of funding you know, a particular piece of conservation work, you pay into the fund so that people can get paid to change their habits and do this kind of work. And yeah, that's that. Those those would be the two main sources of funding. And some sometimes conservation work comes with its own funding to get done, so that can go into the fund and it mobilises people uh, to do to do this work. And then if I mean I love the idea. So if Coca Cola or McDonald's put, gave you you know millions of pounds to invest in sort of conservation work, would they then get some data back to say what the sort of social and environmental good that they were doing? Well, that's the other part of the can-do model. So from from a user, it looks really simple. I live in um, in Allen. I want to do some work in my area. I'll go on the app. I'll find a job. But what we're actually doing is collecting huge swathes of data about. So yes, if you're a corporate subscriber you'll get a dashboard which shows you um, our money went you know we paid x amount of money this translated into x number of our employees doing this amount of work enabling x amount of people in the general neighborhood to do this amount of work the impact of that was and we aggregate the um the impact of the jobs that are done and look at those according to the um the metrics of project drawdown so there is a there's a huge piece of data behind can do as well that's really trying to get nature on the balance sheet which i think is becoming more and more important to more organizations the new york stock exchange just launched the sia index which is which is all about that and you know shifting how we account for value on planet earth so that's you know those are definitely the strands of can do that we're trying to to work on I love that concept. I mean, it just sounds, it sound, does sound hard to get off the ground, but it's a fantastic concept. And if people want to read more about that, um, where can they learn more about Can Do? And it's spelled with a K. K-A-N. K-A-N. There's a www.cando.world. There's a website which is, which is you know, where, where we're working on that. We're just building the pilot now, one in the, the UK and one in the, the States. So that's, that'll give more details around, around that. On this show, we're building a hall of fame for climate heroes, and we always ask our wonderful guests to leave something in First Mile's Climate Heroes Hall of Fame. So, what or who would it be? 
Well, I really love um, my, the work that a very good friend of mine, Jess Hines, is doing to create what's something called a climate content lab, which is changing the whole way that cinema responds to climate change. So we have absolutely wonderful films that, have, that tell these new stories of Earth in a really engaging way, not just the, the usual in-the-bubble documentary, but they're really exciting adventure stories, they're, they're love stories, they're romances, they're dramas, but in them has, that is the content that will help us to, to wake up and realise what we can do around, um, around climate change. Politics is downstream of culture, and if we shift our culture with these incredible, these, these incredible stories that excite us and engage us, then we shift how we think and we start to move out of this crisis as a human family. So Climate Content Hub is going in the Climate Heroes Hall of Fame for me for today. Perfect. So, Sedu, what is the best book, in your opinion, ever written on climate change or indeed best TV programme, film, poem, audio file? Well, there's just so many that are, that are brilliant. I think Jonathan Porritt's latest book, Hope in Hell, is, does an, a fantastic job of bringing together all the different um, strands of, of climate change and what we knew, need to get out of there. So I definitely put Hope in Hell um, as my number one. I think Ben Ockrey's new book, Tiger Tales, from the creative and poetry side of things, is also brilliant because he tells stories, tells stories and he writes poems which wake us up in a different kind of way. So I'd like to put in those two if that's all right sneaked in two there so perfect brilliant i mean it's fantastic to me fantastic to hear about all of the initiatives and and work that you're taking which i think is hugely hugely important what does success look like for you and planetarian can do i mean what does it look like well we do this we step into the future you know 10 years from now it's wonderful you know the children are at their in their in the classrooms. They're learning. They've got the uh, you know uh, education is earth led. Um, you know they've they've got the they've got this sense of you know if we take care of we learn how to take care of planet Earth here. Um, and therefore, when I if I'm going to be a, an energy supplier or I'm going to be a, an astronaut or I'm going to be a car designer or I'm going to be a, a, a shoemaker, I'm, I, they know how to do everything with the planetary boundaries. So yeah, in ten years' time, that won't just be my work, but I would hope that we've the, the advocacy that we've that we do and the, all the incredible um, transformative educators have got through that barrier, and that's how children learn. This curriculum has shifted. To, 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 so people understand that if planet Earth, if we put Earth first, our life support system first, then we whatever we innovate helps us to survive as a human family rather than fuels our demise. So that's what success would look like for me, Bruce, would be having that those that, that, that those learning models in place in, in schools across the world, really. That's fantastic. I hated being at school, but I'd go back to school if it was that good. It'd be superb. <laughs> Cindy, it's been amazing having you on First Mars Climate Heroes. Thank you so much for coming on the show and fantastic to hear all of your stories. Oh, thank you so much, Bruce. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure to be here and I, I'm, I'm a, I really am extremely grateful for you for making the time to speak to people like me and making these stories more accessible to the wider world as well. Hopefully there's lots of inspiration for people in the work that you do and the work that they hear about other people making possible as well. Absolutely, thanks a lot. I'm Bruce Bratley, and you've been listening to First Miles Climate Heroes, where we meet incredible people making an impact to tackle climate change. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and subscribe to the show. We have brand new episodes every Wednesday. 